people have felt sick, they've got symptoms, and they've kept going shopping, they've kept going to work. They have been at the height of their infectivity and they have just continued on as usual. But the only thing you can do when you feel sick, the one and only thing that you can and must do when you feel sick is to go and get tested. And if people don't do that, then we will continue to see numbers increase. I'm being as frank, as blunt, as clear as I can because this message is central to the overall success or otherwise of the strategy and the restrictions that we have in place. Welcome to Undisciplinary, a podcast where we're talking across the boundaries of history, ethics and politics of health. Today we're recording on the unceded lands of the Wadarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Courtney Hempton. Hello. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. How's the uh, lockdown in Melbourne going? Um, it is okay today. We're first day of mandatory mask wearing, but I have not left my apartment yet, so... And do you have a mask? I do have a mask, although I've ordered several varieties on Etsy that are yet to arrive in the post. So I'm looking forward to my mask wardrobe. Excellent. Uh, and today is our uh, first sort of live interview. Um, yes, today we're do- joined by Dr. Jane Williams. Um, Jane is a research fellow at Sydney Health Ethics and the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Uh, Jane specialises in public health ethics and policy and has research interests in disaster preparedness, including infectious disease emergencies, cancer screening and women's health decision making. So, Jane, welcome to Undisciplinary. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm kind of excited to be your guinea pig. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. You can um, hopefully, you know, generate interest and excitement and uh i'll say something controversial we do hope to do an episode on uh cancel culture so maybe uh, (laughs) you can be a guinea pig in that right (laughs) that's right um and also for those of you listening mum uh you can follow us on twitter um at undisciplinary underscore uh and our website is undisciplinary.org uh, uh, we're also putting up transcripts of the um, the podcast there as well. Okay, so yeah, it's great to have you, Jane. Uh, and we're wanting to talk today about public health ethics. And obviously, you know, it's unavoidable that we'll be talking about that in the context of COVID. But perhaps um, before moving straight into that space, it might be good just to sort of pause and have a little think and chat about public health ethics and you know, how do you think, um, say, public health ethics is distinct from medical ethics, bioethics, nursing ethics, all those other forms of uh, ethics in that space? Mm. Yeah, that's a question that I should really have a, like, pat answer (laughs) to, and I don't. Um, For me, public health ethics is thinking about thinking about publics in context and health in context and thinking about what matters in different contexts. Um, yeah, Chris, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> no, but I mean, so thinking about... Although, I mean, I could do that Pat thing. Well, you know, medical ethics is um, generally about how uh, individuals or systems deal with un- other individuals. So like how doctors treat patients or how hospitals treat patients. Whereas public health ethics is a lot broader. It has a different set of 
principles or um, well different sets of things that we need to think about because when we say principles we tend to think about things like beneficence and so on um, in public health ethics it's not so much about that there are loads of different ways that we can approach it lots of different traditions I guess in public health ethics um, yeah so I could either talk for one minute or one hour um, I guess something that is interesting to me about public health ethics is is the difference just that the the focus of the ethics is on public health or is there also a difference in the actual ethics used does that make sense yeah yeah no it does and I think there's a difference in the actual ethics used and I think that's because when we start talking about things like autonomy, for example, autonomy doesn't make heaps of sense in a public health situation. You know, it's the way it's, unless we want to um, conceive of it completely differently, which to me makes it a different ethics, um, then the idea of a person making I guess, free and informed decisions in their own situation, their own individual situation just doesn't translate to a public because if a public involves, I don't know, a million people making, yeah. it, I guess, a million people making decisions for themselves and for their families and for what works isn't the same as a million times one person doing it, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's um, greater than the sum of the parts, to use that Exactly, term. and different from the sum of the parts as well. You know, different yeah. considerations, different things that are important. And I guess yeah. one thing that I like about public health ethics is that thing of not just having a whole lot of individuals sort of amalgamating to make a whole, because there are such different situations um, in... I mean, publics are treated completely differently. So it, if we can just go to COVID for a second, and I'm just thinking about in Melbourne, the difference um, between uh, the people who were returning from Aspen with COVID in, when was it, late February, maybe, yeah. um, compared to, and how they were managed, I suppose, and how that situation was managed compared to the lockdown of the towers, for example you know, with a, mm. with a similar sort of situation. I think that's, a, that's the kind of question that you could talk about with a public health ethics lens, but in terms of just medical ethics or bioethics, it doesn't really make sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something, um, and you said talk about COVID for a second. I now imagine that we will be spending the rest of the time talking about COVID. But in, in this space, just thinking about... The historical dominance, I think, of ideas of consent that have just become part of um, both the more specifically sort of medical, ethical, bioethical um, discourse, but I think also tap into a broader social and cultural understanding of I can't be governed without my consent over certain things. And you see people, they might not be using the language of consent, but they're basically uh, drawing on that idea of um, I didn't agree to this of either being locked down or wearing a mask or not playing golf on Saturday with my buddies. Um, it just seems like a very inadequate way of thinking about this as an issue that we're all of a sudden, you know, as you say, sort of all individuals need to consent to wearing a mask. Um, yeah. 
No, I completely agree. I think consent is a um, consent is sort of a thin way of looking at at any of it. To be honest, um, I would argue that consent um, as the basis for medical ethics is not terribly useful either. Um, but consent, when we're talking about public health ethics, it's seldom really articulated this way, but what it ends up being is sort of liberty arguments, right? So, mm. um, it, you know, it, people doing their own risk assessments, if, if you like, and say, well, it's not going to hurt anybody if I go and play golf with whatever, because it's golf, it's fresh air, it's 1.5 meters away and blah, blah. And so it's my right to do that because, because I have, essentially decided that because I'm not hurting anybody else. So there tends to be a lot of drawing on that, um, I guess, sort of harm principle stuff, you know, where as long as I'm not knowingly and directly causing anybody else harm, then I get to do whatever I want. um, You know, no one likes the harm principle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, but I feel like it's a thing that comes back to to part of all of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, comes with, a, you know, our mother's milk, the harm principle, I think, in um, Western uh, liberal democracies. Um, and I think it's also interesting, the point you make about um, people's self-assessments of their own risk and who who gets to make those self-assessments as well. I mean, that's where we're also seeing the racial and class uh, distinctions on that, um, that, yeah, middle-aged white men can do their own and vocally shout about their own risk assessments uh, in when it comes to playing golf or going to the pub or fishing or whatever. But yeah, when it comes to people who uh, may need um, social housing or welfare support, they aren't allowed to make their own. And they're, they're demonized for failing to you know, take tests or going to their job or those sorts of things while sick. Yeah, I think there's a trust thing comes into that as well, hey. So so um, going back to the Aspen folks, you know, they uh, obviously things change over time. So so comparing the two situations as if, as if the world is in the same place now as it was three months ago is not that useful. But we see this as well with exemptions where essentially rich people or famous people or whatever get to um, – get exemptions or can get exemptions from quarantine because for some unspoken reason, those people can be trusted to do the right thing. Whereas um, other people don't get exemptions. And in some time, you know, some cases that we've seen don't even get told that um, they are being put into lockdown because presumably the thought is that they might in that short window of preparation, do something, so a risky behaviour perhaps that puts people um, in harm's way. I don't know, but rich people are lucky. <laughs> no, they've worked really hard to earn that luck, Jane. You're right, Chris. Yes. Um, so you wrote an article recently for The Conversation, uh, which um, I thought was uh, very good. You wrote that with uh, Bridget Hare. Um about why some people uh, didn't take the COVID test. Um, what? Why did you write that article? What's the sort of... Yeah, do you know, that? actually it was a tweet um, that I saw from Natasha Mitchell who um, from the ABC. 
Twitter for the win. Yeah. And she, um, and I'd always thought that she seemed, I mean, just from listening to her on the radio, she seems like a fantastic person. Um, and she wrote this tweet that was really, really harsh and uh, calling people idiots, I believe, um, for not getting tested. And I think this was when there was some statistic that came out that said um, that people in hotel, a proportion of people in hotel quarantine weren't being tested and also people uh, where there was door-to-door testing were refusing tests. Uh, and I think, so I've been working on a study where we're interviewing people who have been in hotel quarantine. Generally, testing wasn't part of that until comparatively recently, but some people who were tested talked about the terror, basically, that they felt that there was, even though they didn't feel ill, that there was a possibility that they would get a positive test result and not be able to leave hotel quarantine, which... Um, I haven't spoken to a single person who found that process okay. You know, so the way they talked about anticipating those test results made it seem like refusing that test wouldn't be like, you know, wouldn't make them idiots. (laughs) There was so much writing on the result that it made sense to me. And then similarly, the door knock, like I feel like if someone knocked on my door, and said, I'm from New South Wales Health, I want to give you and whoever's in your home at the moment a test. Like, I would probably do that because I'm a rule follower and, and you know, I have respect for how, how, how hard everybody in public health is working at the moment and all of that. And I understand the context really well, but I wouldn't want to do it. And I would kind of feel horrible that, I was making my kids do it and I just completely understand why people wouldn't want to do it. And particularly people who don't necessarily have a good understanding of what's going on or the role that presumably it was Victoria health or whatever, um, the role that that agency plays. And, and I think people need warning and they need preparation and they just need to feel ready before they can, Oh, I'm going to talk about consent before they can consent to any kind of a medical procedure, which a COVID test is. Yeah, so that's why I wrote it. <laughs> Sorry, um, I was just going to bring up, I think the language around refusal is really interesting. So it's kind of this image of someone being, you know, non-compliant or kind of deviated from, you know, this kind of, as you said, like the people who, even if they might be slightly averse, are more likely to kind of just follow the rules um, and kind of respect the uniform or whatever, um, the clipboard, um, whatever you're presented with. Um, Yeah. And I think, you know, in relation to kind of issues around consent, it's kind of just the expectation is that you will engage in this medical procedure um, without, yeah, perhaps thinking about some of those bigger, um, yeah, social kind of political context in which these things are being rolled out. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think, so we looked at this a little bit when I was doing the cancer screening work as well, actually. So I think the the sort of expectation from everybody that you would take a test that's supposed to, 
I don't know, that, that, that gives you some information, essentially, particularly if you're asymptomatic here. So I'm talking about screening, which is sort of more what this is for asymptomatic people. Um, there's the idea, I guess, that it's just a test. What harm can it do? You know, so particularly when we were talking about harms of cancer screening, people were like, what harms could there possibly be? You know, if it finds an increased risk, risk of cancer or if it detects cancer earlier, the, the, you know, that's just a win-win situation, right? As if a test result is somehow just a neutral piece of information and not something that has the capacity to kind of upend your life in some way, um, whatever the result is. Mm. Um, so I think it, it feels like a, I, I totally agree, Courtney, with the language around refusal and compliance, but it just sort of feels like it's a given that we would have whatever medical tests are presented to us as if this is kind of just good inherently. Mm. And I think that's problematic. And I think, um, you know, in the cancer space, uh, this happens as well around um, these sorts of whether it's even a test or if it's seen as some preventative lifestyle measure, the way that then blame is attributed um, around, say, refusal to uh, take responsibility of oneself. Um, and we're seeing similarly uh, in the COVID space, plenty of different instances of blame flying around. Um, and I think it's probably important to contextualise uh, that this is uh, the 23rd of July, the day after Daniel Andrews' um, uh, press conference that uh, we opened the show with. Um, and so by the time this comes to your ears, uh, everything may have changed, hopefully for the better. <laughs> but um, yeah, it seems that even someone like Daniel Andrews, who I think is trying to do a good job of pointing to the employment and the social um, factors that are contributing to um, people uh, going to work <clears throat> when they're feeling sick because they have to go to work and they're in a casual workforce. But even in, even in that context, there still is this um, quite a paternalistic uh, blame of people for doing the wrong thing and that's why we're all in such a bad um, way. And I mean, I don't know what things are like in New South Wales, but I'm seeing people, at least on Twitter, reporting of, you know, people shouting at joggers and those sorts of uh, people who aren't wearing masks and people just getting maybe a little extra antsy and looking for people to perhaps blame whether it's some kind of catharsis to shout at a jogger. A jogger scared me the other <laughs> last night when I was walking. I felt like shouting at him, but that was more just because he gave me a fright. But <clears throat> yeah, thoughts on that in terms of the way sort of these blame uh, is being distributed, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I find the blame thing um, quite interesting. It's as if COVID is not a highly infectious disease that is doing what it's supposed to do as a highly infectious disease, which is like infect people, right? Mm. You know, and actually it's our shortcomings that are making COVID a thing rather than COVID behaving in the way that it's designed to behave. Um, one of my um, fabulous colleagues, Nora, um, ages ago uh, described um, Scott Morrison's uh, the way that Scott Morrison was talking about COVID um, as disappointed dad. Mm. And I really got that vibe um, 
from Daniel Andrews from that clip. And I kind of wonder what that serves really like people. So blaming so there's a huge amount of blaming institutions. I'm sorry. So people are having a wonderful time apparently blaming Daniel Andrews for this situation and blaming um, the chief medical officer of Victoria, blaming all sorts of people who, uh, you know, I know people who are quite uh, deeply involved in a lot of the COVID work that's going on. And I have to say, I have never seen people working harder (laughs) or longer or trying so hard to get this right. So I think when I see institutional blame, I find it quite frustrating. There are different, which is not to say that people are blame free. You know, I think some of the decisions that were made around the towers are the wrong decisions. And I'm comfortable saying that, you know, but then to have Daniel Andrews turn around and blame individuals is a, a classic public health move um, and be just kind of annoying, right? Like what does it serve? It, people who aren't complying <laughs> for whatever reason aren't going to go, oh, dad's disappointed in me. I'm going to really pull my socks up. People who are are just going to feel like virtuous and like they're the only people doing the right thing. And I, I just, I, I don't really know what, what that approach serves. Yeah, I was thinking about the blame Thing. And I think um, Daniel Andrews did double down, I think, last, late last night on Twitter saying, you know, this is not about blame. Um, and I do think the distinction between perhaps institutions and individuals in terms of perhaps some people, I guess maybe a distinction between blame and accountability. Perhaps when we kind of look back on this, there might be some institutions or people that have particular duties that ought to be held accountable in some way. Um, and maybe that's Maybe there is individual accountability, but yeah, I feel like the the blame language and the kind of disappointed dad, I feel like has, um, yeah, in terms of, I guess, public health messaging, I'm not quite sure how effective um, it is in terms of actually getting people to follow the rules that aren't, aren't being followed. Mm. And we do that in all sorts of uh, public health ways, right? Like, Chris, you might want to speak to some of the stuff around, like, food and eating and how how we turn that into an individual responsibility or, or again, going back to the cancer um, screening. You know, if you um, are diagnosed with cancer and you haven't, being up to date with your screening, if it's a screen detectable or um, cancer, then then that is that it's not that people blame you for getting cancer, right? But there is the idea that had you behaved differently, you might be in a different situation now, mm. which is kind of gross because who knows what could have or would have happened. And I think individual blame probably just serves to make people feel bad about themselves. Mm. I feel like I'm talking like a psychologist. I have no idea about this, but whatever. Well, I think it makes people feel, I think the, the point you made earlier was, is um, about uh, it gives some people a sense that they are in control 
like they yeah. they can feel good of themselves and and if we do these certain things then we can control this s- situation um yeah um i suppose just uh thinking we are coming not to the end but um <laughs> towards it uh Something that I think in terms of control that seems to be talked about as the the, the game changer that we need is a uh, vaccination. Uh, so there's a lot of talk about vaccination and, and basically, you know, if we want to return to our pre-COVID life, that's only going to be possible when there is a vaccination. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Um, and I don't know, you know, I've, I've been toying with sort of tweeting or writing about this but i'm not sure if it's going to sort of put me into some kind of anti-vax camp (laughs) but um you know ivan illick in his uh book medical nemesis um you know a great i guess polemic against uh medical medicine at least this sort of positivist idea that medicine is is has been this fantastic unquestionable blessing to all of our lives he sort of points to um, some historical data around uh, previous outbreaks and infectious disease that it was only after they had pretty much come under control that reliable and effective vaccinations were found. It was really at the tail end of these things that... um, And so, uh, yeah, I guess just thinking... And so he wasn't an anti-vaxxer, friends just uh but he was just more uh critical of the celebration around vaccination and we're seeing i think a lot of that preemptive celebration that when the vaccination comes so i guess two things about that i'd be interested in your thoughts one is do we need a vaccination to control a pandemic and um the other well the flip side of that is can we control a pandemic without a vaccination well, we've shown that we can, you know, we're, like for New Zealand, for example, what you have to do is lock everybody into their house for four weeks and then close your borders. You know, and it probably helps if you've got a small population um, and, it, and if you've got comparatively small borders, you know, so we've seen from the last few months that we can control the spread of COVID by really rigorous social distancing and doing things like closing offices and closing schools and so on. With that said, you know, that that's not about getting back to normal, right? Like I think it would be fantastic if there were a safe and effective vaccine that came soon. And I think everybody is pinning a lot of hopes on that. Um, I think it'll be an incredibly, it won't be anytime soon, I don't think to be honest. And I think it'll be incredibly interesting to see what happens with its access and its distribution. So I think that Australia saying, yeah, we'll be right. We'll just wait for the vaccine is probably not very, not a very useful approach. And I don't think anyone is saying that, like I've just totally oversimplified then, but, um, the politics around who makes vaccine and who gets it um, are massive. And Australia uh, has pre-existing contracts for a lot of vaccines, including things like a pandemic flu vaccine. So if there was a pandemic flu um, and then 
near future, which there could be. There's <laughs> something to look for. <laughs> um, we would be fine for vaccine, right? Because pandemic flu vaccine is, it's a known quantity and we already have contracts in place for a vaccine manufacturer in Australia to manufacture and distribution channels are already in place. Because this was unprecedented, did you think oh, <laughs> you yeah. thought you were going to get away with me not saying that? Um, Australia doesn't have those contracts in place. And it will be quite a bun fight, I reckon. And so I feel like having the vaccine developed is just the first step in a really long journey which I guess is to say that I don't think we can rely on it. Yeah, it does seem like the vaccine is being presented as a, oh, once this happens, it will just return to some kind of idealistic pre-COVID life, um, which some people may not even want to return to. Um, but yeah, but that that's just being seen as kind of a single singular thing that doesn't have all of these kind of bigger, that then just creates, opens the next kind of wave of, um, of challenges. I'm really interested in this idea that I keep seeing floated um, and that is around uh, immunity certificates. Um, so either people who, uh, well, I mean, it's still not known how long immunity lasts. So um, it would be, I think, I mean, I think the whole idea is quite frightening, but let's just say that we were going to go with immunity certificates like you could perhaps give to someone, to somebody who has antibodies, but then you don't know how long that would last, whatever. But those people are then supposed to be able to operate in the world in a way that people who are not immune can't operate. Um, and then there is the idea with vaccination as well that if you're not vaccinated, you don't get to move around the world. Um, and I, I say move around the world as if I'm talking about across borders. I don't even necessarily mean that, right? It might be that you're not allowed to go to work or that you have to go to work or that you have to, um, or that people are employed in essential services who are somehow immune. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff being floated, which is interesting. Uh, deeply problematic, a lot of it. But I think people are really thinking about ways that we can return to some sort of normal that involve dividing populations into, uh, I guess, COVID naive and not, which is freaky. <laughs> COVID naive? What? Sorry, people who haven't been exposed to the virus. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I don't even know why I said it like that. <laughs> is that a word? I have no idea. Uh, virus naive people who are, you can talk about people who are naive to viruses who haven't been exposed. Whether or not there's a thing that people say, I've got no idea. Maybe I just read it and liked it. It's the weird dots on the eye makes it very appealing. That word. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's um, it's uh, an interesting idea. COVID naive, and I've detracted from the more significant point of what you were talking about. <laughs> Can you rescue us, uh, Courtney? Yeah, I think the idea of um, COVID certificates or immunity certificates or passports or whatever they're they're being called called just yeah raises you know huge alarm bells <laughs> bells for me in terms of as you said kind of you know this really obvious dividing of the population into 
you know, these kind of people who are considered um, immune or disease free and these kind of this possible kind of, you know, diseasey population. Um, and obviously all, all of the other things that possibly go into, you know, qualifying to get a certificate, you know, access to testing, access to the vaccine, all of those kinds of um yeah, bigger kind of socio-political ethical issues that we've been talking about in terms of kind of testing will then just, you know. Yeah, totally. They'll just replicate in every other way. And I think um, uh, I think also because the freedoms that are curtailed when there are COVID problems, like, for example, as you're experiencing now, Courtney, um, are pretty significant, right? Like freedom of movement is a really, a, it's a, it's kind of like a deeply held thing and now I'm not talking about being able to you know have a holiday in Paris or whatever but being able to go where you want to go even if there's just I don't know to a park in a different suburb or something like that um, the idea of certain groups of people uh, who will not be sort of equally distributed um, throughout the population having those sorts of freedoms closed to them while others don't have those sorts of restrictions, I think it's really problematic. Chris is very smug about his his relative freedoms to mine living in, you know, an hour apart from each other. But yeah. I was going to, I was about to jump in straight after Jane, but I, I thought I'd hear what you had to say and then you just sort of <laughs> make me sound like the, per, the group I'm about to describe, I guess, which I'm part of. But I think, um, yeah, that freedom to move, again, is another one of those um, unquestioned values that people who are particularly white, middle, upper class from Western liberal democracies just take for granted. And we can see that on this. uh, And and they're the ones who essentially are calling for, okay, well, we'll try this. We'll try this sort of lockdown social distancing for a while. But if that doesn't work, then we'll just let it rip and see what happens. Um, and I think that that's where there is this heavily racialized um, history about who gets locked in behind fences and walls and whose lives and freedoms of movement um, we can, you know, benevolently describe as benevolently containing so whether we're talking about you know reserves for uh indigenous and first nations peoples or you know um uh, different forms of asylum and and those sorts of things uh and i guess in thinking about the immunity passports it made me think of this map which we'll put up on the show notes and i'll share with your screen now um about the walled world um and this is just more looking at where there are um certain demilitarized zones or different um, existing uh, patrolled borders, say, to the north of Australia. But the freedom of movement that we take for granted with our passports through, you know, the global north and the unquestioned idea that we should be able to go to these countries and places pre-COVID, but then also protecting ourselves from others entering. So, the I guess, the Mexican... U.S. border being a long-standing point of tension, as well as um, the way uh, Israel uses um, walls and uh, borders and fences uh, 
in the occupied territories in Palestine, I think that we are going to see a um, a furthering of that even within our own communities, perhaps. And and you know we have, I guess, we I guess are seeing that in some ways with say the Melbourne divide. But I think if this stays long term, it will be interesting to see how that plays out and who gets those passports for freedom of movement. Um, and it may not just be, well, I suspect it won't just be based on COVID naivety or not. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't seen that um, before, Chris. That's really interesting, that map. Um, this is not for, um, I know you're recording this, but this is not for the podcast, but I haven't actually, like... Ooh, a little not for the pod digression, though we return to discussing all things COVID-19, borders, the walls that divide us, etc., etc. I talked about it with some of my American friends who were like, um, because they're like, well, it's impossible to put up state borders. And I said, I said, oh, well, they put up state borders in Australia, but it's different. You know, we have roads that go from one state to another. And I was like, yeah, we have that. <laughs> you know, that whole American exceptionalism, there's no way that would work here. <laughs> Um, which was just really interesting that they, for them, that just wasn't a possibility. You couldn't stop someone, you know, going from Florida to Michigan because no. Well, I mean, they, in a sense, I mean, they didn't stop people, but the police were having a checkpoint between Melbourne and Geelong and it was creating like three hour traffic delays. People were like, this is crazy. We can't live like this. And I'm not, I'm not certainly not saying that they should accept that and live like that, but, uh, people in many countries have to go through militarized checkpoints and roadblocks and all of the time. Um, and it's something that, yeah, again, coming back to that, um, sort of innate belief or, or the, the, we feel that we have this innate right to, um, this freedom of movement and any yeah. notion that there would, so yeah, it can happen and it does happen. Um, I suspect it will be unjustly applied. Mm, mm, yeah. Interesting. So I apologize, Courtney, for my smugness being down here. And... <laughs> I'm used to it by now. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jane. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, we, on the show notes, we will, where we'll have the transcript, we'll also have a link to uh, the conversation piece that we referred to that uh, Jane co-wrote with um, Bridget Hare. What else do we have that we can... I'll oh, put that map thing up. Um, I should probably also add that this is partially funded or partially supported by the Australian Research Council, which is generously supporting uh, the Bioethics in the Antipodes project that uh, Courtney and I are working on. Can I say also, actually, that I am funded by um, a prize, which I can never remember what it stands for. It's the Australian Partnership for Prevention Research into Infectious Disease Emergencies, I think. Anyway fabulous interdisciplinary crew and uh, they are doing a whole lot of really interesting work. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you, Jane, for joining us. A reminder, you can find Undisciplinary wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are on Twitter at Undisciplinary underscore and our website where there will be a transcript of the episode and links to things we've spoken about is undisciplinary.org. Excellent. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dude, and next week we'll be talking to Robert Young. This well, joke well-oiled machine. <laughs>